0: Welcome to the Colorado Trial Lawyer Connection, where Colorado trial lawyers share insights from their latest cases. Join me, Keith Buscelli, as we uncover the stories, strategies, and lessons from recent Colorado trials to help you and your clients achieve justice in the courtroom. The pursuit of justice starts now. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Colorado Trial Lawyer Connection. And I could not be more pleased to have Ed Lomina. Hopefully I got that last name correct. Close enough. (laughs) Uh, Close enough. Well, you know, my last name is Fuseli. So I I tend to have pretty thick skin when it comes to mispronouncing last names. Absolutely. But I am so thrilled to have Ed on to speak about what is truly an amazing result and what I would encourage everyone to do. And we'll have to figure out how to get the property damage photos on the site. But this is an amazing verdict where there was literally no damage, basically, to the plaintiff's car and zero damage to the defendant's car in a very, very, very conservative venue of Colorado Springs here in Colorado. So welcome to the show, Ed. Uh, Thank you, man. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. So before we kind of jump in this case, tell us a little bit about yourself. What led you to become the uh, plaintiff's trial lawyer that you are?
1: Well, uh, it, it's actually interesting. I didn't originally want to be a lawyer, that, so I didn't have a childhood dream of being a lawyer. Uh, I had an incident in uh, college; my mother passed away, and I was referred mm, to. Uh, no, it's, it's okay. I was referred to a lawyer by a family friend, and it was a really bad experience. Now, now that I know more about the law, I realize uh, they held on to my case for uh, two years. It was a uh, kind of a medical malpractice case. Uh, they ha- they held on to my case for right before the statute ran and then dropped it. And, you know, I'm I'm a young college kid at the time. And, you know, I didn't really I didn't really push it or understand what happened. I just thought there was nothing there. But I did think it was a bad experience. And I did think, you know, you know, I don't know what I want to do with myself. I'm in college. I don't know what I want to do. With myself. maybe I could help someone like me. And so that was the idea originally of why I wanted to become a lawyer. There were some obstacles in the way and things like that, but that was the original idea.
0: So it reminds me sort of of the Matt Morgan, the John Morgan story of what propelled him to become an attorney where it was, I think, his brother had this, you know, catastrophic incident and was not well represented. And you are the managing litigation attorney at McDivitt Law, which is a pretty big law firm lots of cases lots of value or lots of volume and i'm wondering how your experience sort of if i'm hearing you correctly feeling like you weren't done right by the attorneys involved in your case how that impacts how you handle cases at
1: mcdivitt so it does because i i'm very conscious of the fact that when people come to us you know they come to us because they're in need right? They, something happened in their life. They're, it's not just a car accident. You know, Their life is affected, just like mine was. So I, I obviously always take the time to get to know them and figure out what makes them tick. Oftentimes, you'll meet someone, you'll even meet a client or you'll handle a case and you may not even like that client very much. But as you get on, get involved with the case and you find out more about them and you find out more about the person, and especially when you're getting ready for trial and you're really getting to know them, Something always usually clicks and I can usually relate to something that I deal with with them. Now, we do, we are a large firm that has a lot of volume, but our litigation team doesn't handle as many cases. They still handle more than I would say most litigation uh, teams. But when we, uh, when we get ready for a trial, uh, you know, we're starting months in advance and it's all hands on deck. So every attorney is helping out with the prep of the trial. So it's really a team effort and we do a, we do a really good job of of of. Joining together to help everybody out because because we do know we have so many cases. It takes uh, it takes more than just the person trying the case to get the case ready. So we have attorneys that will come in and help practice crossing our client. We have attorneys that will come in and and we do focus groups and they'll come in and they'll they'll act as the defense attorney in the focus group and they'll do an opening statement for the defense. So there's someone fighting back when we're doing the focus group. So it's a team effort here.
0: It sounds like one of the benefits of working at a larger firm is you've got the resources to really try these cases the way that they should be tried. Am I hearing you correct on that?
1: That that is correct. And, and, you know, I told you earlier, we have a mock courtroom where we are able to practice in and, you know, we bring our, we bring the, the, our clients into the mock courtroom before the trial. And that's where we practice their testimony. So they have the opportunity to sit in a courtroom and we'll even bring out, bring in, Focus group people, and we have them testify in front of them, and we get critiques of what they need to work on and what, uh you know, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses on. So we can kind of cater to the exam to those things.
0: Have you found that putting your client in the witness stand, if you will, and actually preparing them for trial, that that really has a profound effect on how at ease they are when they actually walk into the courtroom? How how, how well how well does it work? Is what I'm.
1: No, it, it does work because you'll even see, like we could, you know. The original preps were maybe not in the courtroom and they're not, you know, they're doing really well. And then you bring them into that courtroom the first time you prep with them. It's almost like starting over because they're so nervous when they're sitting in that seat. They start to forget things that they were saying throughout the whole process. So it it, it is actually, a, and, and that's probably what would happen in the courtroom. If you brought them in, you know, cold into a courtroom, people get nervous. There's a jury there, you know, they're, they're going to forget things. But when, you, when they actually practice in the courtroom, you can actually see them getting better in the courtroom. And then what we've seen is even the clients that we're the most worried about, they get in the courtroom and or they get in the real courtroom and they do really well. You know, they, obviously, they're not, not perfect and they don't say everything we want them to say, but you know, no client ever is, no plaintiff ever is, but they do really well. And so some of the you know, clients I was most worried about, they end up doing really well because they were in that environment.
0: So before we jump into this case, just curious, you mentioned that you had to overcome some struggles to become an attorney. You want to tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, yeah, the the original struggle was just coming from where I come from. I didn't know any attorneys and I didn't know that you could do that, that you could be an attorney. And uh, when I decided I wanted to be an attorney, I didn't realize, you know, I was middle of college and I couldn't, when I graduated from college, I tried to get into law school and I, I actually tried for three years in a row and I couldn't get in. So I actually gave mm-hmm. up. I wasn't going to go to law school. And I worked as a paralegal for those three years. And one day, you know, I'm working in this young, and I worked in big law firms, so big law. And one day a, a younger associate comes up to me and he asked me to do a project for him. And I did the project. And then he asked me to do another project and I did. It. And then he asked me, he asked me. He said, hey, have you ever thought of going to law school? I, I think you would. you would do well. And I told him, and I said, man, you know, I, I I tried, I can't get in, so you know, I gave up on that dream. So, you know, I'm doing the next best thing. And he asked me if I was willing to give it another try. He would help me. He said he was. Uh, wow. Yeah, he was on the admissions committee of, of 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 a law school, and he said he he knew what they were looking for. And at the time, diversity was a big thing in law school, and life experience was a big thing. And and he said, you know, let me help you, and let's give this another shot. And I, I you know, I agreed. And you know he helped me write my essay and he he helped me point out the things that were important and and he wrote me an incredible letter of recommendation and and I got in and uh, wow and so I had given up on the idea of becoming a lawyer 3 years earlier and then I I I got in so I you know I owe him a lot
0: talk about perseverance that is a, an amazing story 3 years denied 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 Fourth time's the charm.
1: One. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I was done. I wasn't going to do it again. And uh, I'm glad he came into my life because I think, uh, you know, I'd live a completely different life right now if, if, if I had not met that attorney. Wow. Amazing.
0: Well, let's jump into the case we're here to talk about. So tell us a little bit about the case and uh, what you were dealing with.
1: Okay. So this is a case where I jumped in to try it. It wasn't my case originally, but the thing I liked about the case was the the client, one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. I will tell you the client I've liked the most since I've been a lawyer. So uh, she was just a great woman and I was really happy to jump in on this trial and help her. So it was a rear end collision. Uh, She's trying to get on the highway and she gets rear ended. And the collision happened at, I think, 3.8 miles an hour or something like that. So there was was very little property damage on her car, very little property damage on the defendant's car. Problem is, is like, you know, she's 60 some odd years old. So she's got Mm. some significant degeneration in her spine, which makes her more susceptible to an an injury. So the defendant's insurance company didn't really want to deal with it because there were, you know, she had a surgical recommendation. So she goes, you know, she goes to get treatment and she's focusing on her neck and she doesn't complain about her back or her elbow. Those were the other injuries. And she goes to get treatment and they, they want her to do PT and she doesn't do PT, but, you know, she gets injections and then she gets recommended for a surgery and she doesn't do the surgery, so she waits. Which let me just jump in real quick. Which which surgery at that? It was a exactly. cervical fusion, cervical fusion. And she doesn't want to do it. And the reason she doesn't want to do it is because as a nurse, she had taken care of patients who were paralyzed. And she one of the the side effects of any type of neck fusion back is paralysis. So she was terrified of paralysis and and she was scared that she would be paralyzed so she didn't she didn't want to do it she did all the injections that they wanted her to do they did uh radiofrequency ablations and steroid injections and none of that worked they also recommended a prp injection for her elbow you know she's a nurse and she didn't like the idea of the prp injection not being fda approved so she didn't want to do that interesting i was going to ask why you know it
0: seems to me you know forgive my ignorance but prp seems you know relatively non-invasive
1: but maybe I'm uh, blissfully ignorant about it. I don't know. So it is, but it's it's, it's very painful. Uh, okay. Most doctors that do it will tell you it's one of the most painful things they do. And it works on some people and it doesn't work on other people. And be, because that's the information that she was given and then she okay. looked it up and she saw that it was not FDA approved, she was scared to do it. So she mm, didn't do that sense. either. So a big, obviously a big part of this case is the property damage, right? The property damage there was none. And the next part was the fact that she didn't comply with what the doctors were telling her to do. But I think to better answer your question, yes, there, w- there was, since this was a first party case, her, the defendant's insurance company, because of the surgical recommendation, just gave up their policy. It was a $100,000 policy, $100,000 policy. They just gave it up. Okay. The UM policy, which was state Farm. Uh, we made a demand, and they said, you know, pound sand, here's $5,000, go away. Fully compensated. Fully compensated, here's $5,000, go away. And we knew that wasn't right. Now, hmm. obviously, we were scared of the property damage, so we would have settled within our policy limits. We probably would have settled if they would have offered anything reasonable. You know, we weren't looking for the amount that we got in the verdict. Because we knew the property damage was a problem, and we knew the, the 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 treatment issues were a problem, so we knew the case had problems. But when when they offer you five thousand dollars, you you have you you know the only other option is to to try it. And with her as our client, we thought you know what we got a shot here, even though the even though the property damage is low, we just have to make sure that we're able to we're able to show the jury how great of a person this lady is. So that was the idea. And to
0: sort of cut to the chase, just in case people are listening and they're not aware, tell the listeners what the verdict was in this case, and then we'll talk about how you got it.
1: So they got a the verdict was nine hundred eighty thousand dollars. Gosh, yeah, five thousand dollar offer, nine hundred eighty thousand dollars, and I believe it was two hundred fifty thousand dollars for pain and suffering, two eighty for the uh, the treatment, uh, past and potentially future for the surgery. And then I believe it was $450 for uh, permanent impairment. So again,
0: probably going out of order, were there any specific strategies that you utilized to try to get that money in the impairment bucket? Or given that you were dealing with a 250 policy, was it not sort of a huge concern to make sure that the money was in the impairment bucket versus the pain and suffering bucket?
1: So no, there, there, there wasn't any concern because uh at the end of the day we had to get 350 to get the 250 policy right so the idea was what do we have to do to get uh $350,000 okay so we knew if they gave us the medical bills w- in the future that so that we're looking at 270 right there but we understood that so the policy wasn't coming in or anything like that the judge didn't let any of that stuff in so what we said is let's just bang them let's hit them let's let's get them as hard as we could so let's put so we did put effort into how we were going to argue pain and suffering and how we were going to argue permanent impairment. So we didn't do anything overly complicated. Uh, what we did was we did a per diem pain and suffering and permanent impairment. And what we did was we told them what, you know, what, you know, for, we, for the money we asked for, what that would cost in a day. And we did the whole, you know, if you were applying for a job thing, right? And the okay. reason we did that, the reason we did that, you know, because I, I, I was considering doing the hedononic damage thing, the only thing is I don't know that that's ever been tested in Colorado Springs, and I didn't want to – I didn't want to tell a Colorado Springs jury the human body's worth $10 million or $50 million without having something specific to back that up because I don't know that Colorado Colorado Springs juries are going to accept that because they don't like to give money, right? Yeah. So so I didn't know that they were going to accept that, and maybe that was just naive on my part, but I, I figured with this one, I wanted – because the whole idea of the case is let's keep this as simple as possible, right? She didn't have pain before. She had pain after, right? There's no explanation. Yes. There's no explanation for the pain after other than this collision. So since we decided that's how that's how simple we're going to keep the case, we decided to keep the damages ask very simple. So we did something that everybody can relate to: applying for a job.
0: Did was there a defense objection to the applying for the job uh, no.
1: argument? Okay. No, not at all. Okay. I think I think they were probably happy we did that instead of the heated not because <laughs> I think I think they were probably like, "Wow, I'm glad they're not doing that." So I think I think they were happy that we did that uh, that that evaluation, but it just kept with the simplicity of the way we were arguing. The sure, case. sure.
0: Uh, Sort of a strange question because I have the same thing coming up in a case of mine where you mentioned that this was your favorite client and. <clears throat> I'm wondering if in cases where you feel like your client is especially likable and especially authentic, if the strategy is you sort of keep them on the stand longer than you otherwise would, right? Normally, the idea is you get your client on and off as as quickly as you can. At least that's always been my theory. But I've got this case coming up and I'm wondering if it's similar to yours where I just feel like the true nature of the client is so beautiful I kind of want to just keep them up on the stand and take my sweet time going through everything. So long question, how did you convey to the jury
1: how amazing and beautiful your client was? So uh, Kristen Boylan did the the direct of the client, but what she did was she did exactly what you said. She kept her on the stand. And a lot of the direct examination was about her and her life, right? So she was a you know a single mother. She raised four kids. She worked three jobs sometimes to so that they could do with, and they never had to do without. Uh, so she was a hard worker. She never takes a day off of work. She really cares about taking care of the military. It's a it's a it's a it's something she takes pride in. So she, and she loves her grandchildren. One of her grandchildren is named after her. Uh, One of her grandchildren is special needs and she's the only one that they will uh, that her children will allow to babysit that kid. So, you know, we brought out all those things about her. So a lot of her direct was just about how great she was. Right. Fantastic. And and we we really had to portray that. We really had to like paint the picture of this woman. So we also called her son, the son who named his daughter after her. And he was I, I mean, when he was done testifying, we were all crying. Everybody in the jury was crying because he was talking about how great of a mother she was. He talked about how hard she worked when they were kids so that he could go on a trip uh, with with his classmates so that he could play sports, so he could do all of these things. He said they didn't see her that much because she was always working, but they had a really good childhood because when they saw her, the time with her was great. But they also got to do – they never went without. It was because she was such a hard worker. And then he talked about how – him and his wife don't go out on date nights anymore because they don't have anybody else they would trust with their special needs daughter other than her. Right. And and it was, he was really, really, really a good witness. Um, And then we called her friend for 50 years to just talk about their friendship and how great she was and, and the things they used to do before and the things they didn't do after. And one Mm -hmm. of the things that we were able to really portray was that her life had significantly changed. So you have this really great woman, who was a hard worker, loved spending time with her grandchildren. And then after this collision, she would go to work, go home, lay down on her heating pad and watch TV. And that's what she would do every day. And she wouldn't, her grandkids didn't come over anymore and they didn't do all these things. And it was just a matter of, well, is the jury going to believe this? And she was so likable and so honest on the stand that they believed it.
0: Wow. That is just, and and I'm assuming that you spent a lot of time with your client to learn all this information, all these uh, arrows, if you will, for trial. Is that sort of the whole trial by human,
1: spend a bunch of time with your client, to really learn all this? Well, we, we, we prepped her every day for a month. Um, Every day? Every day. Every day we had some contact with her where we were asking her questions and, and what we did. And then it's kind of, that's my philosophy. I try to do that on every trial and it's worked for me recently is, is, Every day the last month before trial, I'm going to talk to you even if it's for 10 minutes I get to ask you, you know five questions in that 10 minutes, but you know I'm trying to ask you every day every day. We're gonna do something, right? So we did that with her and and the thing about her was in the beginning She was very closed off. She wasn't a complainer She didn't want to complain about what was uh, what was happening to her and she didn't want to talk about her life and as time went on, we were able to break that down a little bit, break those walls down so that she could actually talk about what happened And, and the thing was she just wasn't a complainer. and I'm sure you've had those clients where you're like For they're, sure. they're great. I just can't portray their greatness to the rest of the world right so so that was the challenge like being able to portray that. and then by the time we got to the to the trial, she was very comfortable talking about, the issue she was having. And she actually did something that she never did in prep. She cried a couple of times and it was genuine crying. It wasn't, it wasn't made up. It wasn't anything. It was genuine crying. And, and I think that that touched us all. And obviously she cried when her son was talking about her when she's, you know, on the stand, but the jury was watching her. um, And they were watching what she was doing. And we know that because they told us after, but you know, that was the hard that was the hard part is, 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 being getting her to be able to express who she was and tell the jury who she was. But once she was able to do that, it was it was it was great.
0: So you've got this wonderful client, great sort of before and after picture with difficult property damage. So did you have a theory or plan going into Voidir of what you were going to deal with, knowing the hurdles your case faced?
1: Yes. And what I what I what I do in Voidir and what I've been doing is I do a bad fact for a Okay. But the, before I do that, because I, I work for a large advertising firm, we advertise mostly in Colorado Springs. I know going in, some of the jurors may have seen me on a commercial. They may have, and I, I don't typically tell them the firm I work for, but they figure it out. So the first thing I do when I start jury selection is I you know I do the basic, thank them for being their thing. I I always try to open up with a joke or something, but it has to be a natural joke. It's not something that I plan. It's just something that that I just say, right? Yeah. Uh, this time I'm, I'm, you know, I was injured, right? So I'm, I'm walking up on crutches. So that that was how I started out. I talked about that, right? But what I, the first thing I typically do is I, I ask them how many people believe there are too many lawsuits, and that starts the conversation. And because we only have twenty minutes, I have to do this fast. Yep. But I go through, and pretty much everybody in the jury pool raises their hand. And remember, this jury pool came up at three o'clock, so they weren't very happy. They were not happy to be there. I broke the ice with them a little bit. And then I just asked them how many people, you know, think there are too many lawsuits. And basically everybody raised their hand. And it was all for the same reason, you know, people are greedy. Too many love. Yep. People want money. You know, nobody wants to take responsibility for their own things, right? And you kind of go through that and you say, hey, you know, I understand that, but does anybody here believe there is no lawsuit ever that's justified? No one's ever going to say that, right? So you go through them and you get them all to admit that you know, there are some lawsuits that are justified. And then I'll usually ask them about advertising attorneys just because I work in an advertising firm. And you'd be surprised how many people don't like the commercials or find them annoying or find advertising attorneys to be uh, slick. Uh, we heard – the in this trial, we heard the word ambulance chaser. I haven't heard that one in a while, but – you know someone brought up i think they're ambulance chasers right so with that right you know you know who you have an idea right now i have to watch out for these people but what i do is i will tell them i'll say something like hey you know you guys don't know me i don't know you this is the first time we met and i say can we make a pact and they usually usually they're like all right i'm curious okay well this is the pact okay i promise you that me and miss Borderline will be truthful respectful And we'll make sure that we're professional in this trial. We'll be very, and we'll be very respectful of your time and everything. If we can do that, do you promise to put any bad feelings you have about lawsuits and lawyers aside and judge us solely on how we put on this case or how we behave in this case? They all say yes, right? Yeah. They all say yes. But now, now we have a connection, right? Because we made a deal, right? So, but, but, but now I have to be and, and, and now, because I only have 20 minutes, right? I can't rehab all these people that think there are too many lawsuits or don't like or don't like uh, you know lawyers. So because I know that I only have that short period of time, now I've made a deal with them that hey, they're, they're they're gonna put that aside and they're gonna judge us just based on this case, okay? And if they won't make the pact, you know they gotta go, right? So
0: that's kind of what I was thinking about as you're explaining that is it sounds brilliant. But it almost sounds like you have to almost give up on cause challenges in a way. You're sort of no,
1: or no. Is, am I wrong about that? No, no, no. You don't because there are some people that when you go through the questions, even though they even though they made a promise to you that they're going to uh, that they're going to be that they're going to judge you based on this case, they cannot right. And they, those those are the people that are going to stand out to you, right? So so you're not giving out on your cause challenges. You're still going to make your, you're still going to make your cause challenges, right? But what happens is is then I tell them I say in being what I just said about being truthful, I'm going to tell you that you're not going to see any property damage at all in this case. Right. Yeah. And then that starts a conversation. Well, you see this, you see them start getting uncomfortable in their chair and, and the, and the people that you think, you know, the people that really, even though they made that pack with you still have biases. Once you tell them that they're going to speak up. Okay. Right. They're going to tell you, they're going to tell you that they, you know, that's a problem for them. Right. And then I usually get into, so once I get past that, I'll get into, um, I got into, in this case, degeneration. Most people will know what degeneration is, and we talk about that and see if people have any, because there are some people that they have pain in their neck and back just from degeneration. They can't get past that someone cannot have pain, right? So so you have to get through that. And there was one guy on the jury who, who had degeneration and got into a car accident and uh, had a lawsuit, but hated lawsuits and hated attorneys. So figure that guy out. <laughs> so,
0: so talk to me a little bit more about that because it. And this is me being selfish because this is my case coming up with a oh, middle-aged woman with degeneration that was basically asymptomatic becomes symptomatic. So walk us through a little bit about how you talk about degeneration and Vladimir. I'm, I'm
1: fascinated. Yeah. So the first thing I'll do is I'll ask, who knows what it is? Because you'd be surprised how many people don't know what it is. And if they don't know what it is, I'll tell them what it is. But usually you'll get one or two people who know what it is and they'll explain it. And then I talk about the fact that you can have degeneration without having any symptoms, right? So I'll ask them a question about that. I was like, for those of you who had degeneration, did you always know you had it? Well, no. When did the symptoms come about? Well, the symptoms came about at this time anything caused those symptoms to come about. So the one guy said, well, I got into a car accident, right? Okay. And then he explained, even though he didn't end up on the jury because he hated lawyers and lawsuits and he was the most vocal about how much he hated lawyers and lawsuits, he was actually very good when he was talking about how he didn't have any pain in his neck or or back and then he gets into this collision and then he needed a surgery, which is exactly what happened in our case, right? So, uh, so he was able to explain that. So then I, I go from there and I, I start talking about being more susceptible to injury. Does it make sense to everybody here that if you have degeneration in your spine, you're more susceptible to injury? And most people will, will pick that up and they'll agree. And then you talk to them a little bit more about it and you ask them, you say, well, you know, I'm telling you here. My client had severe degeneration in her neck and back and she had it before this collision. Now, knowing what you know about degeneration now, is there anybody here who has a problem with that? Or is there anybody here who thinks differently about the case? And, you know, you'll get some people who might them might, but they kind of, I think they understand at that point. And then from there, I went into, um, and then from there, I went into uh, the fact that she didn't do the treatment the doctors recommended. So talk to us about that. First of all, what's the bad fact? And then how did you approach it? So the the, the bad fact is, uh, obviously, she was recommended to do PT and she didn't do it. She was recommended to have a PRP injection, and she didn't do it. And she was recommended to have surgery, and she didn't do it. So the the first thing I asked was, has anybody here ever been to the doctor, and the doctor told them to do something, and they just didn't agree with it, and they didn't do it? And most people have had that experience, right? And I said, is there anybody here who thinks if you didn't do it, it's because you didn't need it, right? And you get some people that'll, that'll go either way. And and then I get into, well, you know, has anybody here ever seen a doctor and the doctor told them to do something? They were just scared to do it. And that's when everybody who's ever been recommended for a surgery or who's ever been recommended for a treatment they don't recognize, they can relate to that because they, they were scared, right? Yeah. I recently ruptured my Achilles and I had to go get a surgery for it. And I'm, you know, I, I know it's, it's, it's not, you know, back surgery or neck surgery or life threatening surgery, but it's still scary, right? So, sure. so everybody can relate to a doctor recommending something and them being scared, right? So, because I knew that's what she was going to testify to. So I was able to bring that out of them. And then from there, because I those were my three major facts, my bad facts. So I then I got into, because I had now, I had, I had made the pack with them. So me and them have a deal. We're invested in each other. I gave them the bad facts, so I showed them I'm honest, right? I'm going to present an honest case. I'm telling you all of the bad things about my case. And then I, that's when I asked them about money, right? Big
0: money, you, you're talking, you talking, you, you're you putting it out there. You start with, we're going to be asking for
1: hundreds of thousands of dollars, trying to get that out, or tell, tell us more. I usually tell them, you know, we're going to ask for money here. And I, I explain why we're going to ask for money. And then I say, anybody have a problem offering a million dollars if the evidence warrants it? Even if I'm not going to ask for a million dollars, right? Because now they're thinking big numbers. So if I ask for less than a million, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm yeah, being makes you I'm look being very, reasonable, I'm very reasonable, right? So one That's of the, right. one of the other things I try to do is always be the most reasonable guy in the courtroom, right? So, so I'll start at a million, I'll jump to five million, I'll jump to ten million. Now people start getting a little weary at ten million dollars, right? And they. Well, I would need to see a lot to give you $10 million, right? Sure. But in their mind, they're thinking, hey, he might actually ask for $10 million, right? So when I don't ask okay. for that, you know, it, it's a, so it's not, so when I do ask for what I asked for, it's not shocking to them because I told them, hey, I might ask you for $10 million at the end of this trial. Sure. Right? Sure. And then once I'm done with that, if I have time, and most of the time I don't, okay. I'll get into uh, burden of proof, and I have this like paper, okay. paper trick. I do either I do it in voir dire if I have time, or then I do it in closing where I do a visual with two reams of paper. They didn't let me do it in this one in voir dire just because the uh, the judge wasn't the judge of the case. He was substituting in that day, and he was a criminal judge, so he hadn't done many civil cases. So he just thought it was it was odd what I was doing, so he didn't let it in. But we got it. We did it in closing. And it it was I think it was helpful to explain to the jury what the burden of proof is. And that and that's usually how I do my voir. Dire. Uh you know, I do the bad fact vaudir. And the reason I do that is because twenty minutes is way too fast. Right? Yeah and, and we couldn't yep. we couldn't get more than twenty minutes. And at one point when I was going, I, I turned to the judge, I said, Judge, how much time do I have left? He said, Eight seconds.
0: Oh my god.
1: And I said, I said, You're kidding, right? And he said, no, counsel. You have eight seconds. You better wrap this up. <laughs> so, so, so I had to wrap it up and thank them and sit down. But, but I had gotten out most of what I wanted. Right? Really, I wanted to get out. I wanted to get them to trust me. Um, so that's why I make the pact. And I wanted to get out the bad facts. And I wanted to know that even though there were bad facts, they would still be. They they were still being open minded, and that they were still willing to give money. And the crazy thing is no one no one told me that they were not willing to give money. They were all willing. Everybody that I talked to was willing to uh, to at least hear the case before they decided how much money they would they would give.
0: So talk to us a little bit about your panel. Obviously, this is a Colorado Springs case. So what are you seeing as far
1: as jury panels in the Springs? So this one was a difficult voir dire because there were a lot of bad feelings about lawyers and lawsuits and they came up at three o'clock and they admitted you know when the defense was doing what they none of them wanted to be there and they were not happy to be there right so so this was a little bit difficult but once I got them talking they took it really serious so our strategy was we wanted a younger jury okay. because we although we we figured uh, older people would understand degeneration and stuff like that I, I, I found that it's very difficult to get the older Colorado Springs jurors, to crack as far as money, right? The very conservative still is giving money. So we wanted a a younger jury and we got that. Uh, There was one juror who was, who was, who would, I, I, I would say would be considered senior citizen, but she, and she was our, she was the hardest one to convince. So I was right about that, but we wanted a younger jury. We were looking for diversity. I'm big on diverse juries. I wrote an article in Child Talks about the importance of diversity in juries. So I'm big on diverse juries. Okay. So I was looking for for diversity if we had, and there was some, a little more diversity in this panel than I've seen previously. And I was looking for uh, people that I thought uh, were educated. The reason being is I, I think it takes, I knew Ming Yao was going to come up and put up these fancy calculations and these big numbers. And, and I wanted jurors who could ultimately kind of understand that because if you don't understand that it, it sounds great and it and you just look at the fact that he's saying you know the, the the forces in the car are similar to sneezing if you don't understand the numbers which most of us don't but if you don't understand the numbers so I wanted a, a somewhat more educated jury and we got we got a lot of what we wanted now there was one juror and it, it was strategic because I never seen a, a judge do jury selection this way and this was different than judge Bentley said he was going to do it so we we had in our mind jury selection was going to be this way, and it wasn't that way. It was the most odd way of doing jury selection that I've ever been a part of. Even the defense attorney was like, "I've never done jury selection that way. i don't I don't I don't understand it." So he's just moving people around into different seats and changing numbers, and it was it was just really confusing so that so and then he was bringing, you know, he would bring people in from the outside and make that person juror number two, and and it was it was just weird. So there were a couple of people that we had spoken to that were outside of the panel because at first he was only allowing us to challenge people in the panel, so we couldn't challenge anybody else, and we could only so there were people that were coming in that we didn't that we didn't like, so we'd have to, you know, we know that person's coming in, so then you have to knock them off right away, so the next person can come in. Now there was one juror there were two jurors in the panel that we knew were going to come in and we had to make a choice between which one we thought was worse so the first one that comes in we ended up using we almost didn't use a preempt we almost gave up one of our peremptory challenges just so that we could we could uh we could arrange the jury that we wanted but we decided not to do that so uh, we knocked off the one and then the other one came in but when she got called into the panel she looked really angry and we were scared about that because we were like, oh man, like that strategic mistake, right? Yeah. She ended yeah. up being one of our best jurors, but strategic mistake. We lost sleep over her. And even when we talked to her at the end, she's like, Why did you pick me? I look so I was so mad that day. And we said and we said it wasn't by choice. <laughs> it, was, it just kinda ended up that way. But she ended up being one of our biggest, uh one of our biggest supporters. But so it was it was just a very odd jury selection, but it was But we got what we wanted. We had a transgendered uh, transitioning uh, male to female who was in the military juror, who was an engineer. And she she ended up being the foreman. And she was also very crucial to us getting the verdict that we got because she was able to uh, explain to the jury how Dr. Yao's calculations were fudged.
0: So talk to us a little bit about your theory and your philosophy and your plan on dealing with Dr.
1: Yao. So, Kristen cross, Dr. Yao. So, we realized the jury really liked him. So, we had to, we didn't want to really attack him aggressively and go after him. We had a different approach for, for their doctor. We were really going to go after him. Uh, he was the target. So, we knew with a 3.5-mile collision, the Delta V that he came up with, it was going to be really hard to really discredit him because this is what a uh, biomechanic lives for, these small collisions, right, that they could say could not have caused any injury. So, Bread and butter. yeah, so what, what what we did, we just focused on the fact that the calculations aren't exact. They could be flawed. And we pointed out, you know, certain assumptions he made, certain, certain uh, inconsistencies with what he testified to, to what was in his articles. And we basically left it at, if any of the assumptions that we talked about that we've questioned here, if if those are completely inaccurate, your your opinion is basically useless. And he wouldn't he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't admit his opinion was basically useless. But he did give us that his opinion could be altered or changed or you know. So he wasn't necessarily the target. Like we knew that he was going to be a hard cross. Like I have a trial next week where I'm going to really go after him. But uh, but because uh, it's it's a different circumstance. But this one. Um, we didn't really go after him. We knew the jury liked him. We just had to show that his calculations weren't exact. It's not an exact science. There are some numbers he's making assumptions on. And if he, and if the assumptions are wrong, his whole calculation is wrong. And that's all the engineer on our jury needed uh, because he was able to then show them like, hey, if this assumption is wrong, if this and that and the things he wasn't taking into account, he wasn't taking into account the height of the headrest, right, which is a major factor in being injured. He doesn't take that into account. Um, so he didn't measure the headrest. He didn't take into account the actual size of, of Miss Kester. He didn't, you know, he admitted that the vehicles that he used were not, the, you know, not the same vehicles. So there could be some variances or changes in his calculation based on being the same, based on being the same vehicle and, and things like that. So just, you know, poking holes like the defense does to our plaintiff's case, just poking holes, sure. poking yeah. holes into uh Into 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 his argument. And like I said, that's all the engineer needed to be able to discredit him with the jury that with a likable plaintiff with a likable plaintiff. And that's that's the whole thing. And I will tell you, even though they liked what he said, they thought the the sitting down in a chair sneezing was ridiculous. They told us that when we talked to them. So they thought they thought that was going too far. Um, Great, that's good
0: to know. I'm about to deal with the uh, Jubal Hammernick pillow strike. So, same thing as a pillow fight. I'm sure our <laughs> listeners have heard.
1: Yeah, they thought they thought they thought that was going too far. We didn't attack delta v's and in, in in the how he came up with the delta v number because him particularly his math is uh, like he never he never does his math in his reports, right? So when you calculate a delta v, there's some numbers in there that he doesn't talk about that he just makes up because there's no way for him to get the to get the number. So we're gonna do that in this in this uh this upcoming trial. We're gonna we're gonna actually talk about some science and I'm not gonna challenge him because I know he's he's gonna beat me on the science, but there's some numbers he's gonna to have to explain to the jury, which we didn't do in this case because we just didn't have the we didn't we didn't have the ammunition.
0: Yeah, I'm curious your thoughts, uh, because I have a case coming up with Jubal Hammernick where the Delta V is based upon his his calculation of crush on both the vehicles, but there were no measurements done. It was just a visual calculation, and I look at it and I'm like, "Well, wait a minute. So if you if it was a half an inch deeper, then how does that affect the delta v? And of course, none of those calculations are run. And I'm kind of feeling like that's a chapter of cross that has the potential to land some punches. What, what are your thoughts on that?
1: It does because uh, so one of the things that these biomechanics do that because we we don't know the science as well as them is they reconstruct the accidents the wrong way. And the way part of them reconstructing the accidents the wrong way is is actually using pictures to show the damage, right? Because the the pictures don't always reflect the actual damage, right? They're, they're not looking underneath the vehicle, they're not looking, you know, for other things how how it is. So one of the things if you look at how a biomechanic is supposed to do a reconstruction for them to be more accurate. They need to actually test the vehicle and actually know the exact damage. Then a lot of them use this NAS database. I don't know if, if he did. So the purpose of the NAS database is to get like vehicles and show and basically get these pictures that show, hey, you know, this happened in this crash and this happened in this crash. But again, that's not what that's made to. That, that wasn't what that was made for. And second, if you it's not the actual vehicles, right? So the vehicles that were involved in the collision, one of the reasons that they never they never test them is one, most of the time they're repaired, but even if they could, they don't want to test the actual vehicles because, wow, that's going to actually give you actual numbers, not estimations or assumptions based on similar accidents that were not the same, that with, with, weren't the same people. So again, it's another estimation and assumption that they're getting from, from the NAS database. And then, when they come up with these numbers or these Delta Vs, they're using, you know, what they got from the NAS database, the pictures and all the stuff, and and none of it is accurate, right? So it's all estimations and assumptions. And if those estimations and assumptions are wrong, then their Delta V calculation is wrong, right? Right, right. So, so you know, that's part of how, you know, a good way to attack them. Now, obviously, there's more that goes into that, and we could talk about this for hours but those are, but those are, but, but those are things that, that is a good area of cross, you know, explain to them why they use the, as why did they use the NAS database, right? They do it so they could pull up pictures to scare you or pull up pictures to say, and there's no way, look at, look at, but if you look at some of the crashes that come out of those, some of the, some of the crashes that have the highest Delta V have the least damage. Right. And some of the crashes that have the lowest Delta V have the most damage. So it's an inaccurate science, Well, and then, and then I feel like you take it the next step,
0: which is, okay, well, so what, whatever the Delta V is, well, so what, what, what does that mean for this individual human in this individual crash? And when you have someone like yours that has pre-existing conditions that make her more susceptible, I just love that strategy of pointing out that the Delta V is not that certain. And then
1: so what, right? And and there's plenty of articles that say Delta V has nothing to do with injury, right? So the forces to the vehicle have nothing to do with the forces of the occupant. And that's sure. a lot of these, uh, a lot of these biomechanics, that's what they want to do. They want to tell you that the forces of the vehicle have to do with the, are the same as the occupant, but you're, we're talking about steel versus muscle and flesh, right? Steel versus, right. so, you know, there's some, you know, you have these smaller collisions where they have a low Delta V, but they've bent the steel bumper or the, or the steel frame. Yep. Well, you're telling me in this collision it was hard enough to bend steel It wasn't hard enough to hurt flesh or muscle.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you and I were talking before about the toe bar issue,
1: right? Because am I right that your client in this case had a toe bar? Uh, Not in this case, my one. going. Okay. Yeah. So in this case, she didn't have a toe bar, no. But, uh, but, But you're right about toe bars. Toe bars also mess the calculation up, right? So if they didn't take into account the toe bar, then their whole calculation is wrong. Right, so there's a lot of stuff to attack. That's so fun.
0: So, uh, only have a little bit more time here. I wanted to talk a little bit about your judge because I understand you had maybe a hostile judge in this case. And uh, is that true?
1: And what'd you do about it? So yeah, so we were uh, very. uh, The judge would not sustain any of our objections, and and basically sustained all of the defense objections. It was. was At a certain point, it got to the point where I just got frustrated, and uh, we made a record. And once we made the record, the judge on that particular ruling gave an explanation for his ruling. But, you know, we made it, we, our record was based on all his rulings because we would go up to a bench conference and he would be talking it through. And we're like, all right, finally, he's going to give us one. And then he would find a reason. He says, yeah, all this, but you know what? I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sustain the objection. We would walk back. Like, "I, I don't understand why you literally your logic all pointed to the fact that we were right. And, So once that happened, we made the record. The first objection of ours or the first objection of theirs that he overruled was when I was crossing uh, Dr. Lotzenheimer and I wanted to use the deposition transcript I got from Mike Fossenier where he testified for the plaintiff. So let's
0: talk about that both procedurally. So you have a deposition from another case that you're going to use to impeach Dr. L on the stand.
1: So walk us through sort of how you got it and how you used it and how the court. All right. So I got it from the list surf and Mike Fosanier has posted it. And so I called Mike Fosanier and I asked him if I had permission to use it, and he was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, fine, do it." I don't know that I really need to do that, but I just want to be respectful to him uh, and his okay. client. Plus, I like Mike, so um, I figured I figured uh, I would be respectful. So so then so so now I have this and. I'm looking at the transcript, and I'm seeing he's, what he's saying in his IME report, which was brutal, by the way. It was, it was unnecessarily brutal, uh, his IME okay. report. What he was saying in his IME report was the exact opposite he was saying in the deposition transcript for, uh, for um, when it was his patient. So the way I started it out was is I, I kind of went through, and I was like, would you agree pain is an injury? And he said no. And I said, OK, well, would you agree that when you uh, if someone develops pain and there's no objective finding uh, that that pain could be the result of a exacerbation of a preexisting condition? Nope. Wouldn't give me anything. It's like, OK, well, do you remember do you remember in 2019 you testified in this case? And he kind of remembered the client. I was like, OK, do you remember testifying objection, your honor, improper impeachment by the defense. He calls us up to the stand because I knew that he wasn't giving us anything. I had the rule with all the case law and the summations of the case law typed out very nicely for him in a report. And I just handed it to him when I got to the stand. And I said, here's the rule judge. And here's the case law that supports my ability to impeach him with his prior sworn testimony. So forgive my ignorance, but how do you, and
0: this is, I should know this, but how do you authenticate the deposition from the other case.
1: So you don't you don't necessarily authenticate it because you're not using it as uh you're not using it as an exhibit you're going to you're going to show to the jury. Right. So I don't I didn't have to authenticate it. But what you do to lay foundation is you establish that he doesn't remember the testimony. And then you establish that he doesn't remember the testimony. And then you just go through the the steps that, you know, and you tell him when the testimony was, it was sworn under oath and you go through those other the, the basic steps. So, so the defense attorney says, she says before she looks at my piece of paper, she says, Well, Your Honor, he says he doesn't remember it. So I think this line of questioning is improper. And I was like, Well, actually, your objection actually helps my argument because what I need to do to lay foundation is establish that he doesn't remember it. And she goes, Oh, I guess I have no objection. So then we went back. <laughs> so he had to sustain so he had to overrule their objection, right? So so we get back and I pull out the transcript and literally he says you know, he gets asked the question in the transcript you have in, in this one, he had two sets of MRIs of the cervical spine that showed no difference. And he gets asked, doctor, there's no acute injury here. And his response is, well, it depends on if you consider pain and injury. And he says, well, what do you mean? Doug? Well, you know, if there's pain that doesn't really correlate with the imaging or we can't find objective findings, I usually say that uh, that's, a pre, that's an exacerbation of a preexisting condition. So then I'm like, well, doctor, <laughs> let's talk about that. It, when it was, you know, when it's when when you're hired by the defense, right? That's not what you say. You, you know, you say it's unrelated. And he's like, and and then he says, so I read that to him, and he's like, I didn't say that. And I was like, well, what do you mean wow. you didn't say it? I was like, doctor, that's exactly what you said. Do you need me to read it again? And he says. Yes, I want you to read it again. So I got to read it again, right? Oh, yes. And then it's like a dream come true. Yeah. <laughs> and then he says her lumbar spine doesn't, uh, isn't related because she didn't report it eight hours later in the ER, right? Well, in this case, his client had a herniated disc that he didn't report pain for for three months. And he actually testifies in the deposition that, no, you don't have to like pain sometimes. Sometimes it takes a while for it to to show up when it was his patient, right? When it was when it was when he was hired by the defense, if they don't report it eight hours later, it's not related, right? So again, he's getting well. That he had a structural problem. It's a completely different case. Well, doctor, if he had a structural problem, you would think he would feel pain sooner. <laughs> now, did you ask him this? Yeah, question? I asked him that before. That was the first question I asked him. <laughs> if there was a structural a problem, you'd feel pain sooner. And he said yes. So then I got him with the you know. And then, and then the best part of it was he had commented on Dr. Castro, and he said he thought Dr. Castro was biased because he was the defense attorney in that case, and he said that uh, uh, Dr. Castro, when it's his patient, he'll say surgery is related. When it's not his patient, he never says it, right? So he thinks Dr. Castro is biased. So I yes, went. Yes, I have
0: that. I have that testimony that that I've, I've used with Dr. Castro. Okay.
1: So what I did was is I said, well, doctor, you've testified eight times for the, for the defense. Right. And he says, I testify for the plaintiffs too. Cause at this point he's pissed off at me. He's very defensive. I testified yeah, yeah. for the plaintiffs too. I was like, I didn't say you did it doctor. I was like, you know, in fact, you've testified more for the plaintiff than you do the defense. I was like, so you, you have, so I'm seeing on your testimony list, you've testified 12 times for the plaintiffs. You'll agree that these were all your patients, correct? He's like, yeah. And you look, you'll agree that every time you've testified for the defense, you've said that the injuries are not related and he said, well, I won't testify for the defense unless I think the injuries are not related. Okay, that's great. And you'll agree with me that every time you've testified for the plaintiffs, the injuries are always related, right? And he says, he "says well, I don't know. Well, I have your 2682s here. And he goes, well, yeah, I, I would agree with that. So aren't you doing the same thing Dr. Castro does? Aren't you biased? No answer. <laughs> no answer. <laughs> no answer. No answer. Like, Wow. Just like it says, everything, this was different. This is That was a different case with different injuries. He went back to that.
0: Uh, Do you get a chance to talk to the jury about what they thought about him? Afterwards?
1: Yeah. So it's funny. The defense attorney, the first thing she says is uh, feels like the tone of the case changed after Lassenheimer's testimony. huh?" And they were like, yeah, <laughs> they were like they're like from the first question I asked them, they said he was defensive uh, and they didn't like that. Like he was defensive and like really standoffish. And so they didn't like that. And then they said they just thought he was completely unreliable. Like everything he he was biased and everything he said was the opposite of what he said in the transcript. And they kind of even said that that kind of changed the tone of the case for them. Um, wow. They liked Yao. They did like him, but then they, they hated Lotzheimer. So and I think we kind of needed that to get back on track. And then from then on, I think every, everything for the trial went really well. Kristen recalled Dr. Crowther, who was our spine surgeon. Uh, and if you don't know Dr. Crowther, um, he's only testified twice, both for us. He's excellent. Um, and uh, he came back on rebuttal, and Kristen was able to get him to really nail home. The surgery was done, not because of the degeneration, but because of the degeneration and the pain symptoms.
0: Yeah, talk to – and by the way, the surgery was never done. No, surgery that's was why recommended. he recommended it.
1: Sorry. Recommended okay. Yeah. <laughs>
0: But I, I, I saw that in your explanation. I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about the difference between the surgery being needed because of the pain, not the degeneration. Talk, talk us a little bit about that
1: distinction. So what, what Dr. Crowther will tell you and what other doctors will tell you and what we argue is uh, the degeneration by itself is not enough to do surgery. You need, the, you need the other thing. There's two components to it, right? There's the pain, right? So degeneration without pain doesn't need surgery because why would you be operating? You're not fixing anything, Right. So for a surgeon to do surgery, they need the degeneration, plus they need the pain symptoms. And the pain symptoms have to be those of not just normal pain. They have to be kind of, you know, life-changing pain, right? So it makes you change the way you do things in your life, right? So what what Dr. Crowther would say is he treats the symptoms, right? He doesn't treat the MRIs. So what he says, you need both the components. He'll only do surgery if he has both those components. So at the end of the, uh, you know, the jury gets to ask questions, right? So originally Um, Dr. Crowther testified on video so they couldn't ask him any questions. We got him to testify live on rebuttal. So the jury asked him, they said, Hey doc, if you had just met her and she had degeneration, would you have done surgery and no pain, would you have done surgery? And he said, no. And they said, well, if she had, so, and then I think the next question was, okay, if you hadn't met her and you just saw her X ex- and you just saw her MRIs, would you do surgery? And he said no because I would need to know if she's in pain. And then the next question was: was the pain was the was the degeneration why you did surgery? And he said no. I did dis- I, I need two elements to it. I need degeneration and I need pain. If I don't have both those elements, I can't I won't do surgery because I won't be helping them. In this case, I did the surgery because of the pain symptoms that she was that she had. So I did the surgery because of the degeneration in the pain, not the degeneration. So and that's you know the last thing the jury heard. Wow.
0: I uh, am so inspired and in complete honesty, I have learned so much. So thank you for taking the time to speak with us. This is one I will go back and listen to again and again. And I understand you're in trial on Monday. So probably by the time this is aired, there's going to be another trial under your belt. And I think you're you're trying uh, an enormous number of cases with fantastic results. So I just want to personally thank you for taking the time to share your wisdom with us and all that you do for Colorado trial lawyers. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you inviting me on. It was uh, it was a good time. All right. And if people want to get a hold of you, uh, it's probably sort of like Coach Prime. You're you're not hard to find.
1: I am not hard to find. uh, McDavid Law Firm. (laughs) Edward Lomina. Just look for me.
0: (laughs) uh, All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been a true inspiration. And again, thank you for taking the time. We'll see you soon.
1: All right, man. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us. We hope you've gained valuable insights and inspiration from today's courtroom warriors. And thank you for being in the arena. Make sure to subscribe and join us next time as we continue to dissect real cases and learn from Colorado's top trial lawyers. Our mission is to empower our legal community, helping us to become better trial lawyers to effectively represent our clients. Keep your connection to Colorado's best trial lawyers alive at www.thectlc.com.